When the war began, it was unlike any America had seen before. There were no outside forces threatening invasion, rather, an insidious resentment toward freedom that brewed deep within a segmented population. Unlike the previous American Civil War, there was no clear geographical division. There was no North versus South. There were pockets of those who wanted to dismantle the freedoms provided to Americans by the Constitution, right next to pockets of the traditionalist citizens who were willing to die to protect them. Suburban neighborhoods turned into battlegrounds, and rural communities became territories where one side or another could hole up and regroup. This geographical scatterplot caused even greater damage to the American landscape, fracturing the national economy and making it nearly impossible to organize an effective resistance to the new American uprising. To make matters worse, the new Americans were far more organized than the traditionalists at the start of the war. They had powerful allies holding high positions in the military and federal government, allowing the uprising to reach deep into the very roots of national defense. While tensions had grown amongst the American public for several years, most traditionalists had underestimated the level of violence new Americans were willing to commit to achieve their agenda, and therefore severely underestimated them in scope and the power up to the moment they launched their first attack in Los Angeles. The president was assassinated and the three branches of government dismantled. The armed forces split into two warring factions that, for nearly a decade, decimated American cities in a deadly arms race, leaving both sides disorganized and scrambling for weapons. One major concern amongst traditionalists was how vulnerable the homeland had become to foreign invaders. Shortly after the attack on Los Angeles, China sent a small faction to Northern California, where a communist zone was established and supported by the local New Americans. Luckily, foreign invasion did not permeate further than that. While most foreign communist superpowers supported the uprising, they wanted to bide their time and let the new Americans handle the resistance. Not to mention, Russia had expressed interest in the East Coast after China landed in Northern California, and the last thing those two countries wanted was a war with each other. It was best, from their point of view, to let the Americans hash it out and divide up the remaining land when the dust was settled. As it happened, traditionalists were outmatched and unlucky from the beginning and the fate of America was looking grim. Unbeknownst to all involved, the fragile future of American freedom would fall into the hands of a few young traditionalists. They had no idea the historical weight that rested on their shoulders. They only hoped that this time, for once, luck would be on their side. Cove Creek Media presents Triumph Tales from the Second American Civil War Created, written, and narrated by Tom Jello Starring Isaac Robinson Smith as Ben Lainey Pejos as Georgia Tom Jello as Jim Rayon Rivera as Thomas Additional voices provided by Alexa Capiello, and Alistair James Murden. High up on the ridge, George peers down at the jumbled group of soldiers heading toward the base. She tries to make out Ben, but they're too distant to distinguish any faces. Thomas sits behind her, organizing his first aid kit and Jim tosses rocks into the trees that line the forest's edge. 
Do you think he'll make it inside? Not a chance in hell. Making it inside is one thing. Getting any sort of pertinent information and getting back out alive is another. George's gaze falls and she rolls onto her back, staring up at an overcast sky. I just wish we could help him. Jim turns to her feverishly and opens his mouth to argue or insult, but his words catch in his throat. I gotta take a piss. Jim struts off into the woods. Jim leans against a pine tree with one hand to keep him stable and unzips his pants with the other. With a sigh, he begins to relieve himself. The silence of the woods sinks in. And yet, a strange feeling strikes Jim, raising the hairs on the back of his neck. He is suddenly overcome by the feeling that he's not alone. A twig snaps behind him, confirming his suspicion, and he whips around. His trail of urine falls and splatters on the laces of a pair of thick combat boots. Jim's eyes follow the length of the towering figure that now stands before him. It's a man, or a monster, or something in between. Standing easily seven feet tall is an enormous new American soldier. His uniform is tattered and veins ripple across exposed muscles the size of boulders. Jim's eyes finally reach the behemoth's head, revealing a necklace strung with human finger bones painted red, blue, and black. It was the soldier's face that frightened Jim the most. Etched into his flesh, straight across his forehead, is the word Deus. And stretching below his chin, across his neck, from ear to ear, is the word Americana. The letters are scabbed and scarred, giving the giant a zombie-like appearance. An enormous wood-chopping axe rests across his shoulders, and the edge and the handle are both stained with blood. Roughly 50 yards away is one of the lifted trucks that led the caravan the group had seen the previous day. The last of Jim's urine patters on his boots, and the soldier's face twists into a hideous and ferocious scowl as he lets out a low, blood-curdling growl. Hey there, big fella. Sorry about the boots. Well, you can't sneak up on a guy when it's taking a piss. Jim glances around for an escape route, only to find himself cornered against the tree. Jim points to the axe. Just out here gathering some firewood, I take it. Well, don't let me interfere. I'll just be on my way. Jim turns as if to walk away, and in an instant, the monstrous soldier explodes, swinging the axe full force at Jim's head. Jim ducks, just in time. Feeling the blade graze the hairs atop his head. It strikes a trunk of a pine tree behind him. Jim draws his handgun from his waistband, but the soldier swings his fist away from the axe handle, knocking the firearm from Jim's hand before he can pull the trigger. It skitters across snow and pine needles. The soldier grabs Jim by the collar and lifts him clean off the ground, flinging him effortlessly into the snow. Jim rolls back and forth, gripping his stomach, trying desperately to gather the wind that had been knocked from his lungs. He manages to flip onto his stomach and crawls forward towards his gun. The behemoth yanks his axe from the tree and walks toward Jim, who struggles to gain traction on the frozen ground. The axe swings down and Jim rolls out of danger, but the blade snags his shirt and tears it off his back, pinning it to the ground. The soldier dislodges the axe and raises it again, preparing for another strike, this time aiming at Jim's torso. Jim leaps into the air and grabs hold of a pine branch as the axe narrowly misses the bottoms of his boots and lodges itself in the trunk of the tree once again. He swings forward and wraps his legs around the soldier's face. Violently, he pounds down on the top of his head in desperation, 
but doesn't seem to cause much harm. The soldier flails blindly, but manages to get a grip on Jim's hips and whips him down to the ground in a vicious body slam. Jim clings to his ribs and rolls back and forth in pain. He tries to stand, but he can't seem to gather his strength. The soldier yanks his axe from the tree and stands over Jim, ready to deal his final blow. When suddenly, the pine tree behind him, shrunk weak from the axe blows, splits and begins to fall toward the giant. He lets out a panic grunt, but it's too late. The tree falls on the soldier, pinning him to the ground next to Jim. He struggles to push the massive splintered trunk off of himself, and just as he begins to get free, Jim stands over him, gun in hand. He cocks the hammer back, ready to fire. I like your truck. What do you say you and I take it for a little spin? Back at the campsite, Georgia and Thomas feed the captive soldier. They hear the sound of a truck tearing up the hill. Georgia, that's a new American truck. How could they know we were here? Get your gun. The truck pulls up, and Georgia and Thomas surround it with guns drawn. The window rolls down to reveal the giant soldier behind the wheel. Jim is in the back seat, holding him at gunpoint. What the hell, Jim? Get in. Are you crazy? Where are we going? We're gonna go get our leader. Thomas ties a captive soldier to a nearby tree and jumps into the truck with Georgia. Meanwhile, the new American caravan reached the gate of the camp. A stern-looking soldier stops the group. Halt! He walks alongside the line of soldiers and vehicles, performing a hurried inspection. Ben avoids eye contact in an effort to hide his nerves. The inspector stops for a moment, and then... Alright, open the gate. Two more soldiers slide the barbed wire fence open, and the caravan marches through. Once inside, Ben splits off from the group and wanders the streets of the camp. They're lined with various tents and makeshift structures. Ben could tell that this campsite must be a permanent setup and is probably one of the larger new American bases in the area, certainly the largest he had ever seen. Soldiers are strewn about, polishing guns, playing cards, and napping on cots. As unorganized as the camp seems, Ben finds himself intimidated by the sheer size and number of new Americans. Ben comes across a large red and white tent that looks like a repurposed circus tent near the center of the camp. Outside, two men share a bottle of whiskey as a third vomits into the bushes. Ben makes his way past them and into the tent. Inside, there is a makeshift bar complete with tables. A musician sits in the corner picking a banjo, serenading the sparse crowd of imbibers. A man at the bar catches Ben's eye. It is a statuesque man with gray hair and a scar across his face. Chills shoot across Ben's skin as he realizes it is the very same general that slaughtered his parents and took his twin brothers 10 years prior. Instinctively, Ben reaches for his gun and it takes everything in him to resist pulling it from its waistband and unloading every bullet into the man. Killing him now, at the center of the camp, would be suicide and would serve no purpose. Instead, Ben approaches the bar and takes a seat next to the general. The bartender walks by. What can I get for you? Oh, whiskey. Straight up. The general glances over. You have good taste, son. The bartender uncorks a bottle of Jack Daniels and pours it into a small tin cup that looks like it came from the top of an army canteen. Look at that. That whiskey is from my private reserve. 
Do you know how hard it is to find brand name liquor 10 years after the fact? Ben raises the tin cup in acknowledgement, and the general follows suit in a cheers motion. Only the best for my soldiers. None of that homebrew battery acid shit those traditionalists drink. Oh, you say that now. But when you run out of bottles, that homebrew starts tasting alright. Oh, we're not gonna run out. First thing I do when we win this war is open a distillery for fine spirits. Just like they had in the good old days. Hell, that's why half of my men fight for me. <laughs> you must be new. I haven't seen you in my regiment. Yes, sir. I was just transferred here. A transfer, huh? There's something familiar about you. I can't quite put my finger on it. What unit did you transfer from? Ben's heart begins to race as his mind searches for an answer that won't give him away. Wait. Don't tell me. I can always guess a unit. Guy who appreciates good whiskey must be from a southern unit. New Orleans? Yes, sir. I knew it. I can spot a southern soldier a mile away. Welcome to the North Country, son. You're a long way from home. Ben breathes a sigh of relief and knocks back the rest of his whiskey. Not used to the cold. Yeah, you get over it pretty quick. You got other things to worry about in those woods. A lot of traditionalists hold up out there. Rumor has it there's a few grouped out together in the suburbs around Pine Lake. Small groups, though, not very organized. Easy enough to snuff out. You don't say. Nothing to worry about, though. They're not too bright. What makes you say that? If they had any brains, they'd have given in to the new America years ago. Oh, well. When you can't use diplomacy, you have to use lead. <laughs> the general laughs and taps the gun that's holstered to his belt. They got a place to piss around here? Through there. There's a hole in the ground. The general points to flaps in the wall of the tent, and Ben makes his way toward them. Behind Ben's back, the expression of the general's face melts from friendly to menacing as he stares after him. As the flaps close behind Ben, he quickly removes the small bottle of chemicals and the square cloth from his jacket pocket. He places the cloth over the top of the bottle and flips it upside down. He shoves the bottle back in his pocket just as he hears the rustling of the tent flaps behind him. He whips around to see the general, a large hunting knife clenched firmly in his hand. Sir? Don't serve me. You gonna tell me who you really are? What are you talking about? There is no New Orleans unit. A moment of tension hangs thick in the air. The jig is up. Ben lunges for the general, who stabs wildly with his knife. Ben manages to catch his hand, the tip of the blade almost piercing his chest. They struggle, and the general takes Ben to the ground. He rolls on top of him, pushing the knife down with all his might, but Ben pushes back, keeping the sharp point at bay. Ben reaches up to his free hand and covers the general's mouth with a chemical-soaked cloth. The general gnashes his teeth but can't escape Ben's grip. He returns his attention to the knife, and it begins to dig deep into Ben's flesh as he groans in pain. Just as the blade begins to draw blood, the general grows weak from the chemical fumes and his eyes start to glaze. With the last strain of effort, his grip loosens and he falls unconscious, slumping to the ground next to Ben. Ben struggles to catch his breath and listens for any commotion inside the bar, hoping the struggle didn't draw more attention from other new American soldiers. Nothing. He's in the clear. He looks over at the unconscious general. Part one was a success but Ben knows he still needs to get the general out of the camp 
and that the hardest part of his journey across enemy lines is yet to come. A mile from the camp's front gate, the lifted truck roars down the road. Jim's still pressing his gun to the back of the giant soldier's head, staring forward at the gates that grow closer with every bump in the road. Jim knows they were all facing certain death. Or maybe, today, for once, luck was on their side. They were about to find out.